Hi, and welcome to the Hollywood Dreammaker Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Gallo. I'm a 35-year veteran actor. I'm the kid who came out to Hollywood with 200 bucks in my pocket and a one-way ticket when I was 18. Didn't know a soul out here, and I've been living my dream ever since. I've had an amazing career. I've been an Academy Award-winning film, blockbuster film, hit TV series. You name it, I've done it, and I got the IMDb credits to prove it. Six years ago, I opened up my own school, the Manhattan Actor Studio, where I found my true passion. That's teaching the craft of acting, but not only teaching the craft of being the guy. Success leaves clues. I know how to make dreams a reality. I did it for myself, and I do it on a daily basis for my students. And I can help you achieve yours. Welcome to my podcast. Let's get started. I am super excited to introduce my guest. He's a legendary producer, having produced more than 100 television shows. He's the winner of three Emmy Awards. I want to welcome Tom Beers to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Billy. It's great to be here. It's great to see you, Tom. So I want to just set it up a little bit. You know, I created this podcast to inspire young artists to follow their dreams. If a kid like me can come out to Hollywood at 18 with 200 bucks in his pocket, a one-way ticket, not knowing a soul out here and make the dream a reality, then it's doable. It's possible. If I can do it, then that listener out there can do it too. If somebody like you, you know, I mean, we go back. I, I was thinking about how far we go back. It's just to set it up for the audience. I was 15, 16 years old. It, it was 1981, 82, somewhere around there. I was kind of, I ran away from home. I was running the streets of Brooklyn, running with the wrong crowd, some wise guys. You know, I was looking up to guys in the neighborhood that were getting in trouble. And and uh, I saw my idol get shot in the head and uh, he got shot five times in front of me. And I knew that this was not the life for me. I knew I had to change my life. And I was uh, in fear for my life. I was running from some guys. And I remember running, coming down my block and seeing Steven Gucciardo, my neighbor, uh, he had a, he used to have a white Mercedes Benz that had a license plate that they said Gooch. And I thought he was like just the coolest guy in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I always, he was always dressed up really nice and he was always going somewhere. And I would always say, where are you going? Where you, take me with you. And uh, he told me he was going to the theater to, you know, acting. And, and I was like, please take me with you, take me with you. And, you know, one day he took me down to, um, to Luba's loft and there was a theater group called the new family theater. And there was a bunch of young actors out there and they were putting up plays. And, and I was just, I was 16 and I was looking for family. I was looking for a place to fit in. I was, I was kind of lost. And, and I found exactly that. I found a new family in the theater. And I was so inspired by you guys. You know, there was a great group of actors and you were putting on plays. I mean, I believe, was it Sorrows of Steven you did? Or, or? Absolutely. We did Sorrows of Steven. You know, did a number of plays out of that little theater. Yeah, that was the beginning. I mean, Billy, you know, you talk about, you know, coming from nothing. I mean, you know, I came out of, uh, you know, a small town in upstate New York, a little town called Batavia. And, you know, I basically went to college and University of Massachusetts, Amherst and University of Colorado. And, you know, I worked my way through six and a half years of college as a janitor. You know, I mopped floors. That's how I got through. I got my college education and, uh, you know, I got a couple of breaks, moved to New York as an actor. That's when I met you. And, uh, you know, like everybody else, we're just kind of struggling and working our way through. But, you know, the thing is, I've always learned, I, you know, my trajectory 
was interesting because I, I, I found that I was always kind of meeting and, and, and being mentored by a lot of really, really smart and, uh, and talented people. And that kind of, you know, went through my entire career. I, you know, I got a job working for Lee Strasberg in New York, uh, with a great acting teacher. And I worked for him in his house and, uh, you know, for a couple of years. And at the time that I met George Firth, who was a great playwright who wrote Merrily We Roll Along and wrote a company, wrote a number of plays, musicals, and, um, he got me work, you know, working for other well-known actors. But, you know, what's really interesting is that, you know, I, I realized I ran into this crowd that was uh, you know, uh, John Guar, a playwright in New York. And uh, uh, he and a number of uh, Terrence McNally, these guys used to go off and sneak off to AA meetings, even though they didn't have drinking problems. They just went for great stories, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was a really interesting world. And, you know, I, I, I got it from there as an actor and I had no... You know, I was kind of always broke as an actor, but then I became a director because I just didn't really like the odds of being an actor. And so I, I went from there and then I got a job working in TV commercials as a PA and I worked my way up through that. And I got a job, you know, from you know, ended up being produce, uh, producing TV commercials, a number of commercials for McDonald's and Ford million dollar TV commercials. And then went off to, to Atlanta, got a job working for Turner Broadcasting, worked for Ted, you know, and I traveled around the world with this documentary unit and environmental unit. And I'm one of the creators of Captain Planet and the Planeteers. And I worked my way through, you know, to work with, uh, you know, I was Jacques Cousteau's executive producer for six years. I was the executive producer of National Geographic Explorer from Turner Broadcasting. And, you know, then I got hired by ultimately by Paramount and I moved to LA and started, you know, so, I mean, the journey, you know, it, it took, it was a 30 year journey. So when people are in a hurry to get somewhere, I always say to them, it's like, number one, it's not the destination, man. It's the journey because, you know, once you get there, then you got there, you got the t-shirt, but it's the journey that's important. You learn every step of the way. I love that. So can, can we rewind a little bit? I love this Lee Strasberg thing because, you know, I studied at Lee Strasberg after being at, over at, you know, Luba's and, and, you know, I did my first sure. play from that, the active studio. What did you do with Lee Strasberg? I worked for him at his house. He actually had the largest private collection of theater related books in the world. He was a, a, a bookophile. He, he literally, you go to the Strand bookstore every, every week, uh, and he'd buy books and he'd buy them in English and Russian and Italian and just this incredible. So he had a 12 room apartment in Central Park West and every room was floor to ceiling books. I mean, you walk into the kitchen behind the boxes of cereal, there were books, you know, on the floor, <laughs> there were books, stacks and stacks of books. So he had no idea what he had. So they hired me to come in and I, I cataloged his entire library. It took a couple of years. But what was cool about it wasn't necessarily the job of that, but, you know, to be around Lee and his environment and also but to just see these amazing people. And so I asked him, I said, Lee, how do you how do you work with this kind of diverse group and how do you get along? He says, Tom, he says, if you want to be a, a producer or a director, he says, I swear to God, this is what he said. He says, think of talent as cactuses, he says. And the, the more talented they are, the, the more prickly they're going to be. Because <laughs> your job as a director is to embrace that cactus and ignore the little pricks. <laughs> 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 I 
I was like, wow, what a great piece of advice, you know? And I mean, I, I took that to heart. He, I remember him coming in one day and he says, uh, Tom, he says, what'd you learn in college? And I said, uh, Lee, I, I don't know what I learned. I said, I, I, you know, I, I kind of did a lot of skiing. I was in Colorado, Massachusetts, and I did a lot of plays and I partied a lot. I mean, I don't know what I learned. And he walked away and I thought, oh my God, I've, 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 I've disappointed my great mentor that, you know, by this stupid answer. And he came back about two hours later and he said to me, he said, Tom, he says, you learned more than you'll ever know. And that was it. <laughs> but it was great. It was great. I mean, being around that library particularly, it was really cool because when I find a book, I remember once finding a, a group of uh, in, a, in a folder in a stuffed in a book of uh, Arthur Miller's love letters to Marilyn Monroe which have never been published, never been seen. And I had the, the opportunity to spend an afternoon just reading Arthur Miller's love letters to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, in another book, I found uh, Dylan Thomas, a handwritten piece of poem written on a bar napkin and given to Lee that was just stuffed in another book. So you never knew what you'd find. And you know, the whole house was filled with Marilyn memorabilia because his wife Paula was the, the executor of her estate. So they had all of Marilyn's her grand piano, all of her wardrobe, and everything just there. I remember one time he Lee had two kids, David and Adam. At the time, they were maybe five or six. And they came into the house one day and they were playing catch with a baseball and they were bouncing it off the walls and down the hall. And I picked this ball up and I looked at it. And it was autographed by Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio. I'm like, oh my God, these kids are fucking playing catch with this thing. It's like, oh, it was just like, oh. But no, that was life. That's awesome. So let's go rewind a little bit. You're one of the biggest producers in, in, in television. I mean, you've, I, I looked at your IMDb and I was like, I couldn't, I, 123 producing credits. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's even wrong. You probably produce more. They don't, you know, usually list everything. But I, I was kind of blown away to see what you've done. And, and then I was, as I went down to those first projects, there was the, the writing credits. Did you... Did you write your way in, in, into producing? How did that go? You know, writing is an interesting craft. I, I, I remember, um, was it Thornton Wilder? He wrote about writing. The playwright, he said, you know, I equate writing to eating glass. <laughs> <laughs> so writing was never, it was never my strong point. As a matter of fact, I remember when I started my company, Original Productions, I went into it with a partner named Tom McMahon. And I did it specifically because he was an amazing writer. And working with him gave me the confidence to write my own material. I, I wrote a number of plays when I was in New York, Lynn and Clean and White. I did a, you know, a, a few plays, but I never really had a great deal of confidence in my ability to write. But as the years went on, and I found myself doing more and more rewriting and then ultimately writing, but it never, I, I have to admit, it wasn't my strong point. Um, story was my strong point. The thing about, you know, remember all my credits, to be really clear, are mostly in, in reality programming. So I'm not a scripted guy. You know, I did a couple of scripted shows when I was running Fremantle. Uh, and we'll talk about that later, but um, I never was that. So, but what I did do and what was interesting is my shows, when I came to Hollywood, I was moved here by Paramount. They hired me from Turner Broadcasting uh, and I came to L.A., and my stuff was really sticky to, and people didn't understand what I was doing or why my stuff was so unique and different, my reality stuff. But what they didn't realize is that all those talents that I had, those that I'd learned from the theater, 
character arcs and story arcs and dramatic arcs. You know, I, I managed to understand and basically evolve story in reality uh, using those techniques. So, I mean, I, you know, just, you know, all of my, you know, my act breaks, you know, instead of a three act traditional structure, it was a five act traditional structure, but I did character arcs and story arcs throughout those breaks. So they were like, wow, what's he doing? That's so unique and different. And that was really, you know, using McNee and, and McKee and using, you know, stuff I learned from Stella and Uta Hagen in reality. So that's what really kind of popped me. And funny, because now I see the technique and obviously about two generations of people have worked for me or three, you know, I mean, I got fathers and sons and mothers and daughters that have worked for me. So I watched that evolution and now I see my, you know, that technique, you know, I mean, everywhere. So what advice would you have for aspiring writers? I mean, you mentioned McKee, uh, you're talking about Robin McKee, right? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. so, so what advice, you know, developing that, that talent? Is there certain books? That they should really, I think the, the advice I'm giving is that, you know, the whole idea here is that you got to learn, you use everything, you know, it's like this, this bag that you basically, you know, you just, Oh, I can learn that. Oh, I got that. I got, I took my psychology and I, you know, when I put a little bit of the, you know, so you, you learn the alchemy of it all, you know, and in essence, that's what makes it really interesting is that you got to learn how to make your own special sauce. And you got to do that by basically being involved in every aspect of this business. I often say that, I mean, I, I just, Oh God, I always hate when people come into me and young people particularly say, hey, I want to be in development because I got great ideas. And I'm like, dude, I really don't give a shit about your ideas. To be, <laughs> I mean, how do you make it work? How does it, you know, can you actually produce that idea? And the only way you're going to know that is if you've been through every other phase of the business. You know, if you understand talent contracts, if you understand music contracts, if you, you understand distribution, you understand ratings, you understand demographics, all the stuff that, you know, you understand production, you understand budgets. That's all the shit you got to know before you say, I got a great idea. I mean, I learned all that stuff before I started basically making television shows. And that's, again, what made me and gave me the advantage because I knew, here's the thing. I spent 12 years or 11 years at Turner Broadcasting as a network executive after I was an actor and a playwright and I worked for Strasburg and did all this stuff. So then I went into the network side. So when I came out of that, I knew when I walked into an office, I knew the first six questions that executive was going to ask me because I was in that seat. And I knew that, you know, and, and it's funny because I often would say that when I was an executive at Turner, I would watch a producer come in I never met before. And I, in my mind, I go, are you the one that's going to fuck up my career? Are you that person that's going to fuck up my career? You know, so that's the first thing you think about. So then the second thing is, well, geez, who is this guy? Is he a storyteller? Is he good at what at his craft? You know, is he interesting? Is, is he fun to be around? Is he going to basically give me stuff that I, I, I don't expect? You know, all those things are the, that's what the executive's going to ask. You know, obviously they're going to ask the silly questions like, well, can you do it for this budget? And is this going to sustain into a series? I mean, those are just those redundant, you know, silly ass executive questions, but more importantly, it's the subliminal information that you get. Now, here's the thing. And Strasburg taught me this. And I remember seeing Alan Ackborn's play, The Norman Conquest, which I don't really remember, but it was a play that took place over three different nights. And every night it was the it was the same play, but it was in a different room. So the first 
night is in the, the living room, the parlor. And then the second night you're in the kitchen and the hallway. And the third night you're in a bedroom, you know, so each of the rooms, but it's the same play. So when somebody makes an exit, the first night, you know, the second night, they're making an entrance into the, the next scene on the other side that you don't see the first night. But Strasbourg always taught you that. It's always say, look, you're never, ever, when you walk off, you walk on stage, you're not making an entrance. You're making an exit from someplace else. You've got to carry that life in with you, right? Now, as, an, as a producer, what do I want to do when I meet a talent or an executive for the first time? Just as I said, I want them to they know that I'm interesting, that I can tell a story, that I, I'm going to be fun to be around. So what I would do as an executive, if I met the executive for the first time as, as a producer, I would walk into the room and inevitably I'd have a, my head of development with me. And as the door opened, it would be like, you know, Mark Green at, uh, at uh, Sci-Fi, right? So the door opens up. And as before Mark says anything, I'm like saying to my head of development, so there I am, and I'm laying in the bed, and Mark, great seat, give me one second. So I'm laying there, and all of a sudden, the door opens up, and a guy comes in, and he sits at the end of the bed. You're going to love this story, Mark. So I'm sitting there going, whoa, and he says, well, I just came to get something. And it turns out that's the old boyfriend, the girl I'm with. And so he reaches under the bed, and he pulls out a shotgun, and he's sitting at the end of the bed, and I, let, we'll finish this later. Hey, man, really, really nice to meet you. You know, so now what have I said to this guy? First of all, the guy wants to hear the end of the story, right? So he knows I'm a storyteller. He knows, number two, that I'm kind of interesting and be fun to be around, you know? And number three, I can deliver the goods. I already have a resume, you know? So in essence, that's the stuff that you learn. So that's what I learned from acting. So you're making these entrances. It's the same thing. You're walking into these entrances. They're really exits from another scene. So anyway... And I, that's, I learned that and it, and it worked really well for me in my career. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that previous circumstance. Where are you coming from? Yeah. You ever get nervous pitching, you know, like early on going into a pitch meeting, trying to pitch something? You ever get nervous? No. Nah. No, because as I said, I, because I sat on the other side and I know in, in that seat, you know, I know their challenges. No, as a matter of fact, I always had a, my, my, my motto and I taught that to hundreds of people that work for me at Original Productions. My motto always was, hey, I'm always going to be your solution and I'm never going to be your problem. You know, so if you can walk in with that kind of confidence and they don't need to see you sweat, you're going to sweat. And believe me, I mean, I remember a kid named Tim Jekko. He was an actor in New York when I was studying with Strasburg and he studied with Lee too. And Tim was at the time, and this is 30, 40 years ago. He was killing it as a, a commercial actor. I mean, he was booking a commercial a week. I mean, it, nationals. I mean, he was killing it. And I remember one day he comes into me and he goes, God damn it. I said, what? He says, yeah, fuck. I just, I booked another commercial. I'm like, <laughs> what's the problem? He said, well, he says, these fucking, these jobs are getting in the way of my auditions. Because <laughs> it was fun getting the job. And it was never fun doing it, but it was fun getting the job. And that's what he was saying. And I, I understand that. So, you know, getting a commission, you know, getting in the room. I'll tell you my best pitch. This is the funniest pitch. I'm going to see Kevin Kay. He's the head of Spike in New York. And this is probably, again, 15, 20 years ago. And as I'm, I'm in New York City, I'm there with my head of development. And I'm going up the elevator. And I say to her, we had two completely developed, fully, fully developed TV series that we we're going to pitch. I mean, we had all the decks, we had sizzles, we had everything. As we're going up, I look at her and I say, Christy Dees, uh, who's at We Now, 
and, and say, um, Chrissy, I said, you know, I don't want to do either one of these shows. She's like, what? I said, God, you know, I just want to blow shit up. <laughs> so I get into this meeting and I sit down, there's Kevin Kay and there's like 12 executives from the networks and they're all sitting there from Spike. And Kevin says, hey, Tom, what do you want to do? I said, you know, Kevin, what I really want to do is I want to blow shit up. But let me, well, let's talk about the pitches. So we, if we spend an hour and a half, only 90 full minutes pitching these two complete, fully developed TV series. At the end of it, I look at Kevin Kay and I say, Kevin, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to blow shit up too. <laughs> Never heard a thing I said for 90 minutes. All I wanted to do was get back to that the lead, which was I want to blow shit up. And we sold a show called Boom to him based on that. And it would have been a terrific series, except it was right when 9-11 happened. Mm. And for the first three shows, we were traveling and blowing shit up. And all of my camera gear kept getting confiscated because it had black powder on it. And I went, okay, we can't do this show anymore. It was fun. It was awesome. All right. So let's talk about unscripted television. Is it really unscripted? I mean, do is there is this improvisation? Is you just following? Is it like a documentary? You just following these uh, these fishermen on a on a boat? I mean, how 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 unscripted is it? Well, you know, I mean, probably it's good to kind of throw my resume out there. You know, I'm the creator of Deadliest Catch, uh, Ice Road Truckers, Storage Wars, Axemen. A uh, thousand ways to die, black gold, bearing sea gold. You know, I, you know, monster garage, monster house. You know, so you know, I've done a, a, a lot of different types of um, of unscripted shows, and most of them, deadliest catch is a perfect example. You know, that's that it is what it is. You know, I mean, do we ask for a pickup line once in a while because we're in really difficult situations and locations with loud noises and things like that? Yeah. But we let the drama play. Now we have the advantage. And I think that you guys should understand the distinction that when you have a really good size budget, then you're allowed to really film for longer periods of time, let's say a week for every episode and you're shooting 150 hours of material for a 44 minute show, it certainly gives you a, a lot more luxury than a lot of these shows that are out there now. I mean, the Kardashians kind of shows, I'm not talking about the above the line costs. I'm just talking about production. You know, they want to get those shows done in three days. So in essence, you know, you, you shortcut your way through that and you get people to say what you need them to say and you move on. You know, that's not what I like doing. I mean, I really like the reality of reality television. So not my cup of tea, but some stuff, I mean, storage wars is a great example. We film the action and then we go back and we actually write those little sit downs that the talent's saying, I mean, that's way after the fact. And we, we, you know, which makes them sound incredibly clever, you know, but it's just television, you know? So casting for this, are you out? Are you, are you casting, you know, you're going out, are you a hands-on producer? Are you on that boat? Are you, are you like oh, meeting yeah. with fishermen trying to find the right guy who's got the right personality for the show? How's that work? A funny story. Uh, Storage Wars is a great example. Storage Wars came about because I was really, really interested in 1-800-GOT-JUNK, those trucks that drive around. And I thought, you know what? you know, there's gotta be a TV show in this. So I talked the CEO of, um, of 1-800-GOT-JUNK into letting me put a film crew on a truck for a week in LA. And, um, when the stuff came back, the material came back, you know, it was a lot of just hoarders and just junk, just terrible, awful backyards just filled with crap. But 
four times that week, the truck went to a storage place and they were emptying out a storage container. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa to the producer that was on the, the cameraman. I'm like, what is that? And he said, well, it's the weirdest thing. He says, they got these auctions and you can't go in there and you just got a bid on stuff. I'm like, what? So I'm thinking, wait a minute here. This is, this is really unique. It's a, a treasure hunt, but you're not allowed to treasure. So I'm like, let me see if there's a story. So this is what I normally do. So I basically, I started going to the auctions. Nobody told nobody who I was. I bid on some stuff. I actually bought a couple of a whole where a storage unit filled with uh, Biggie Smalls stuff that he'd left behind. What? I mean, I literally I bought a, a size 80, I swear, the biggest ostrich suit, two-piece suit, three-piece suit I ever saw in my life, just made out of ostrich skin. I mean, this guy, he had like 40 pairs of, you know, size, I think the waists were size 60 denim jeans, you know, I mean, all this stuff. But anyways, but I'm, I'm buying this stuff and I got caught up in the frenzy. But the whole time, and I went on for about three weeks, I never, and I'm watching all these people bidding and I cast the show, that series, from the people that were really in that auction, with the exception of Barry Weiss, who's that kind of really slick, you know, Barry. And Barry was, uh, I knew him from my Monster Garage days, and I knew he was an antiques dealer. I bought some antiques from him. So I just thought that he would have the right pitch and be the perfect foil for all these other guys. So anyway, so casting was key. And I remember, this is the interesting thing. There was a, a couple, Jared and his wife, God, why am I drawing a blank with her name? Anyway, I didn't want her because it, I thought she was really dull. But the my producer said, you know what? She's great. You just got to let her play out a little bit. And uh, I did. And she ultimately, the, the two of them became big stars in the series. So, you know, you, you'd never know. But the key to it is that you just keep your mouth shut, get in, listen, and kind of figure out, all right, who's got the dynamics? You're looking for archetypes. You know, you've got, you know, who's the wise ass? Who's the the powder keg? Who's the up and comer? Who's the down and outer? You know, that's the, so now there are all these archetypes that you can kind of really, and when you start to blend them and you put them together, you kind of realize that you've got, you know, a mix and match, but it really works. That's the alchemy of it. I was reading that you, you were nominated for how many Emmys? Oh, um, <laughs> a couple. I'm, I've, I've done pretty well. Yeah. Where, where are you keeping those Emmys? <laughs> hey, they're like, uh, me, oh, uh, I don't know. I, I, there's some probably somewhere nearby. I, wow. Look. <laughs> there's a couple of them. How, how's that feel to have those bad boys in your hand? It's pretty powerful stuff. They're pretty cool. You know, the tough part is, you know, losing. I probably lost the first four years in a row. And that was like, oh, that, that one hurt. So grabbing these bad boys was kind of fun. That's pretty awesome. Oh, there's other. Oh, no, you, you've seen enough. Yeah, I, you got more. Yeah. <laughs> How many do you have all together? How many Emmys do you have? You won? No, I only got three. I That's, had three. Only, only three. <laughs> That's all, huh? Yeah. That's awesome. So, which show has been the most challenging to produce? Hmm. Every every show's got its challenges. I mean, Deadliest Catch is a massive challenge just because of the environment. I mean, it's freezing cold. It's deadly. You know people really die and, and get injured and it's exhausting. It really is probably the toughest series I've ever done. Short form or more like it in, in a short minute season, the coal mining show was really, really tar- you know, hard because you're working in a four foot seam of coal. So 
all the cameramen and the producers, everybody just kind of worked literally on their hands and knees for, God, a couple of three months. I mean, that was, that was really tough. And I was kind of glad when we decided we, went, we didn't want to do any more of those. You know, so every show, Ice Road Truckers, I mean, I remember doing Ice Road Truckers going up to Alaska and I'm looking for this opening shot where the sun just comes up for like one second and I wanted to put a truck through it. So I'm up on the Dalton Highway and it's 40 below zero and I'm by myself and I'm walking up this road kind of looking for the, that period. And then finally I'm sitting there and then waiting for the sun and it just kind of peaks up and I hit, get hit with this blast of wind and it freezes my eyes shut. And all of a sudden, I realized that I can't open my eyes. It's 40 degrees outside, and I have no idea where my truck is. And I'm by myself. So luckily, you keep your truck running at that temperature, because if not, it'll die. And I could barely, barely hear the truck, the engine running. So I had to get on my hands and knees and crawl for about 30 minutes back to the truck for my eyes to thaw out. So, yeah, so that kind of stuff is always a little hairy. So you're you're a hands-on producer. I mean, you're out there in the snow. You're out there on the boat. Is that what you do? I mean, you're on that boat with those fishermen? Yeah, I talked myself onto that boat my way on the, the first one, the first season, the second season. Absolutely. I made the, the, again, it was a happy accident. I was doing a big special for Discovery called Extreme Alaska. And in it was a, just a small 12-minute segment on crab fishing, because I'd read this article about being the deadliest job in the world. So I went up to Dutch Harbor and talked myself onto the Fierce Allegiance, me and a cameraman and a sound guy. And um, Rick Message uh, on the Fierce Allegiance let us get on the boat. And we went to sea. And I thought it was a little bit like Gilligan. You know, I thought we were going to go out for a three-hour cruise, which was basically three days. But little did I know that we were about to run into the worst storm in 40 years that uh, we'd be two days, we'd be 200 miles at sea and the wind was pushing 70 knots and the waves are breaking at 40 feet and two boats sunk and seven guys drowned around us in that season. It was really, really, it was, it was a disaster. And I just, all I could do is I just keep filming, you know? So, you know, that, that's your, the test of your metal, you know, it's like, all right, what are you going to do? You're going to cave. I figured, you know what, I'm going to be dead. So let me just keep, filming and I got a little pelican case and I'm going to keep my, actually it's true. I was up for about 48 straight hours filming in this craziness. And um, I had this case pelican case and I was keeping all my tapes. I had to climb a mast every two hours to change tapes and a battery on a, an old um, VX 1000 that was in a underwater case strapped mast to the mat to the mast. You know, so I'm, I'm in the middle of a storm and I'm climbing this thing, changing. You know, it was insane. I'm, I'm completely haven't slept in days. And I've got these tapes and I'm thinking, OK, here's what's going to happen. The boat's going to sink, clearly, and we're all going to die. But just at the last minute, I'm going to take this box Pelican case with all my notes and all my tapes. And I'm going to throw it overboard because I know that the currents are heading south. And then I figure that it'll take probably two years but, you know, two years, that Pelican case is going to wash up on shore in Santa Monica and some kid's going to find it and hand it to his Emmy Award winning editor father who's sitting at the beach, you know, getting a sunburn. And he's going to, Daddy, look what I found. And then they would make my, my, my show. And I'd, you know, the, the, at least the story would survive. But no such luck. But to tenacity was I came back from that. And I remember 
getting off that boat and I was absolutely feral. I mean, I didn't, I grunted for the first 24 hours afterwards. I was just like, I was insane (laughs) out of my mind, you know, and it changed me. It changed uh, my trajectory too, because that show, you know, was my first great big, you know, hit and monster hit. And it still is 18 seasons later. So, so let me get this straight. That was you like getting some footage for like a sizzle reel to go pitch this thing. No, it was me getting, I'm sorry. I finished that. It was me getting uh, a, a, filling a 12 minute segment in a two hour anthology. Okay. And so I got, I got the 12 minutes, but I was like, so I'm like, dude, this is insane. And so I jumped on a plane and flew to DC with a small sizzle and said, look, you guys, there's something really, really big up there. And so I talked uh, Discovery into giving me a, another 60,000 bucks to make an additional one hour special just on crab fishing. Uh, and that's what triggered uh, Deadliest Catch was the, and it, that show, by the way, was still to this day is probably the most profitable show in the history of the Discovery Channel. You know, so it just How many years? huge numbers. I mean, it just popped massive numbers. You know, and that was what, in 1997, 1998. How, long, how many years was the show on the air? It's still on the air. It's still being produced. It's 18 seasons. 18 seasons. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's you know what, cool. You know, I got to tell you, you're, you're, you're a genius because I know you do a lot of the voiceover. You use your acting, your talent as a, as a voiceover. So, I mean, I would say cha-ching <laughs> because, you, I mean, you, you get residuals as a voiceover artist, right? Well, that, that was a happy accident, too. Yeah, obviously, I'm a trained, I have a trained actor and a trained voice. But I didn't get into that because I wanted to be a narrator, I got into it because I was doing that Extreme Alaska show and Scott Glenn, the actor, was narrating the show. And um, I finished the two-hour special and I sat down with Scott Glenn and he narrated it, paid him 20000 bucks back in 1998. And I love that because he's like, I love doing these narrations. He says, this great pocket change to me. And I'm thinking at the time, 20000 bucks is pocket change? Holy crap. You know, that's some success. Guy was good. I mean, he really, he nailed it. I mean, first time I I never saw such, the guy was just a consummate pro. But what happened was I had a, when the head of the network saw the show, finally, just before it was, I delivered it. And two months later, I got a call from panic call from the producer that I was working with, who said, oh my God, he says, you know, Mike Patron just saw the show. And uh, I know it's supposed to be called Extreme Alaska, but it's too extreme. And he said, I sold, he sold it to, cruise ships and this is too extreme and you got guys with frostbite and people are dying and he's like you got to change this and by the way it's a great lesson to learn and he said look you can do it or we can do it i said no no i'll do it i'll do it so i went and i shot a couple other segments and i finished the whole thing up and so i i had another two pages of narrations that had to be covered to re-narrations for the new segments and uh i went look for scott glenn and he was on a glacier in New Zealand doing that movie Vertical Limits, which he was a, a mountain climber. And uh, he was film, shooting that film on a, on a glacier. And so anyway, I had to send a guy with a Nagra on a plane to land on the glacier, to hike up to the set, to location, and get these two pages of narration. And it was supposed, the tape was supposed to get to me on a Wednesday. The show was going on the air Sunday night. And Wednesday, no tape. Thursday, no tape. Friday, 
no tape. I am freaking. Saturday morning, the tape shows up. I can't believe it. Shows on Sunday night. I still got time to do the laybacks, do the mixes, and get on an airplane myself and carry that tape to D.C. from L.A. And so I start. I crank the tape, listening to it, an old Nagra, right? And roll tape, I'm listening to it. And it's Scott Glenn, the first 10 minutes, just bitching about the fact that he's got to do these pickups. He's like, this is bullshit. You don't pay me enough money. I'm on location making a movie. I don't want to do this. Well, all right, he's here. So I'm telling you what, I'm going to read it and I'm going to read it once. But this is fucking bullshit. And he goes on and on. And on. So then I'm like sitting there waiting. And finally, he starts to read. So he reads the script. He reads page one. Perfect. No page two. He doesn't read the second page. <laughs> I'm like, what am I going to do? I mean, my whole career is going to go in the toilet. The guy didn't. So I'm sitting there. I go, fuck this. Okay, I tell the, the, the uh, engineer, I said, look, roll me Scott Glenn. And so I sat there for about an hour and I listened to Scott Glenn. And then I took the script and I said, okay, roll it. And I read page two as Scott Glenn. I put it in the show. It went on the air. And to this day, nobody knows the difference. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. So, what I learned from that was I'm not ever going to let somebody else control my destiny. So I, at that point, snuck myself in to do narrations for a few shows. And then I, they, they worked and I knew what I was doing. And so, you know, I've probably narrated over 500 TV shows to date. Wow. It's a pretty lucrative business. So let's say I'm a young actor and I want to get into the voiceover land. Any advice? Yeah, make your own shows first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. You know, to be honest, I'll tell you my, my funny story, because um, I never really worked for anybody else. I had a really bad experience with, um, I was doing Monster Garage, which was my first big hit. And uh, it had a specific voice. It was uh, Jesse and his gang of maverick mechanics, rip, grind, and burn, transforming ordinary street vehicles into monster machines in the monster garage. So it had this kind of cadence. And, and I got this call one day from a, a creative director of an agency in Chicago. And he said he was doing a, an in-house, an industrial, just a, a, a fun little uh, send-up of Monster Garage. And they wanted to hire the voice of Monster Garage to narrate the the, this parody. So I said, okay, cool. I'll do that. It was 5,000 bucks or something they offered. And so I go into a, a here in LA and the creative director is in art director is in Chicago. And I start to read the script that they'd done, which was a parody of monster rush. And the creative director stops me about 10 minutes in. He goes, wait, wait a minute. Uh, and he gives me some directions. He said, could you try it this way? And so I start to read it and he goes, wait, wait no. He says, how about this? Another time. He says, ah, it goes on for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And then he finally says to me, he says, you know what? It's just not working for me. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. You hired the voice of Monster Garage, do a Monster Garage parody, and the voice isn't working for you? <laughs> so I said to him, I said, well, I understand. I said, do you know what else isn't working for you? I said, what? I said, me, motherfucker. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and I walked out. And that's the last time I worked for anybody else. <laughs> Sorry, it's really a bad piece of advice to give anybody. 
How's the the business has changed? You know, it's because of the pandemic. As far as actors going into audition, you know, everything self tape auditions and Zoom callbacks. How has it changed for a producer now? If I wanted to pitch a show to you, is there in the room or are you doing Zoom meetings? How's the pitch going now with the whole pandemic? Well, yeah, you're asking. It's an interesting question. First of all, I, normally I don't really you know, work with, um, you know, other producers, it's got to be a really kind of unique situation. And they've got to look, if you, if you want to work with really experienced producers, what you've got to do as a young producers, you, you need to have a really unique, either a, a piece of talent or a universe, a world that's, that's, that's not uh, accessible to anybody else. You really got to have some strong proprietary stuff because coming in with just an idea you know, it's like, again, dude, it's like, you know, you're pushing the rock up the hill. Today, the stuff is more driven, character driven than any any time in the past. Uh, and it's gotten to be the point is character and celebrity driven. You know, celebs always kind of were there. I used to hate that when I would come to me, especially when I was running Fremantle. And I'd get, you know, big stars that would come in and sit down and uh, they'd say, uh, you know, I... I, I really want to, you know, do this reality show about these guys and motorcycles. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Um, uh, are, are you going to go on the motorcycles with them? He says, no, no. I said, uh, are you going to produce this? Well, no, I'll just, the whole idea is I'll lend my name to it. And, you know, you can kind of do it because they're my friends. And I'm like, dude, I ain't doing that. You know, I mean, that's, that's the stuff that used to just drive me crazy. So, you know, but you get somebody who's like, you know, Norman Reedus, who was really, really involved in that motorcycle you know, series that he did, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, but you know, most of the time, just a lot of people just want to be loosely helpful and keep their name on stuff. So that's hard. So, but you know, I just think that finding something really, really unique, a really unique universe with a great angle to it and great characters, then you got something, you know, and you also then hopefully you got to try and lock that in so that somebody else doesn't just kind of take it from you. So. Well, it's it's still it's a tough business. I have to admit, Billy, it's the the times have gotten a, real, a lot tougher. The budgets have gotten smaller because of obviously the dilution. There's just so much material out there and so many networks, and so you know, and the ad dollars are way way down. So it's 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 gotten a lot harder. So I, I don't necessarily know my advice going into the future. I don't know what I would do, except I would get on one horse and I'd ride it hard. So the whole idea would be, as I said, to find that one thing and go with it as opposed to just try and do anything because it's really, it's hard. The rewards aren't like they used to be. We could actually get rich in this business. Um, you know, that was kind of fun. Not anymore. If you could go back to the younger you, the 18 year old, the 20 year old, some, you know, and give yourself some advice about the business life. What would that be? God, you know, can I tell you, Billy, I, to be really, really honest, you know, I, I've had a really, really blessed life uh, and a, an amazingly blessed career. You know, I've made a bunch of mistakes in my life, but as they say, you know, you, you, you only learn from your mistakes. And the bigger the mistakes, the bigger the learning curve. So I, I certainly don't think I would really change much of anything. I mean, I, I, I had a massive dose of wanderlust, and I managed to find uh, an occupation that 
offered me the ability to go and do that, to travel the world, to live with the Kaipo Indians in the Amazon for four months with the Yanomami, you know, for three months in the Amazon to shoot in 21 countries in Africa alone, to sit with the mountain gorillas in Rwanda and the pygmy elephants in, in the Serengeti to, to just basically you know, to see it all, to drive the Dalton Highway in a semi-truck all the way to, you know, above the North Pole, to to sail in Tierra del Fuego and, you know, swim with sharks and, you know, and avoid saltwater crocs and Darwin, you know, it's just like, good God, it's, that's the thing to me. I mean, it's been a portal and a, just working with the amazing people that I've worked with. I mean, it's it's been a great life and I'm certainly not done yet, but I'm probably spending more time spending my kids' inheritance than I am kind of making television shows. <laughs> so what's next? What's the next for you? Yeah, you know, I've got a couple of uh, series that I'm working on, uh, just stuff that I really like doing. There's a series on auctions. I, I like to collect a lot of art, and uh, I love uh, auctions. So I'm kind of doing a little bit in that world, and I've got a little feature film that I'm working on that I, I wrote a script many years ago called Chopper Zombies about motorcycles and zombies. And so I'm kind of pushing that up the rock. Uh, I'm working, you know, with Morgan Spurlock now, who's doing a great rewrite on it, who did uh, supersize me. And so, you know, I've got that project and um, I'm just, I don't know, right now, just kind of enjoying life. It's been a great run, you know, and I just, you know, hand it on to the next person. You guys go get them. Kick some ass and take some names. <laughs> Real quick, last question. That beautiful art piece behind you, can you tell me about it? Yeah, Carlos Almarez. He's uh, an incredible, he was one of the first uh, Chicano artists in uh, L.A. And um, I did a doc about his life. It's called Playing With Fire, Carlos Almarez. It's on Netflix. Really, really interesting and unique life. He passed away 30 years ago from HIV and... Um, but he just lived a really kind of a meteoric life. And uh, there's another piece right here. This is a beautiful piece called Pasa Dobla that he, that he did as well. So I, I've got a lot of his work kind of around. And, you know, I, I just love his stuff. He's a, he was an incredibly talented colorist more than anything else. I mean, his colors, as you can see from that, those pastels, are they're, they're so they're spectacular. Beautiful. They did uh, LACMA, the L.A. County Museum of Art, did a beautiful retrospective of his stuff about three years ago. So that's awesome. Tom, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. Thank you so much. Bill, it's my pleasure. And, you know, congratulations to you and all your successes. And, you know, let's just keep fighting the good fight. I, I look forward to seeing you again. We got to get together, sit down, break some bread. All right, buddy. All right. Take care. Cheers. Thank Thanks you. for doing the show. Okay. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. Please rate, review, share this with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't. Please take whatever you get from here, the golden nuggets, and apply them to your career. Go after your dreams with passion. Don't let anybody tell you it can't be done. I believe in you. Follow your dreams. I'll see you in Hollywood.